Uh, good morning, Grace Point. My name is Andrew. If I haven't met you already, I'm one of the church family here, and I want to echo Terence's welcome to you this morning. It's great to have you here. Uh, this is the last of our five-week series, thinking through some of the big issues of life from a Christian perspective. If you've been coming along, checking out church, considering what Jesus says about some of the big issues of life, welcome. It's so important to think carefully through life, how we approach it, and how we live in it, reasonably and usefully. We pray that you would keep checking out Jesus for yourself. He, uh, he is one of the biggest things to work out in life. I don't know about you, but I know for myself, I felt really challenged in lots of things that we've talked about. We've realized that it's so not theoretical. The issues we've talked about are lived, practical. They affect us and they affect the ones that we love, don't they? And so I want to say before we start today, today is no difference. The topic of forgiveness and justice is not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's personal and up close. If you engage with people, which is everyone here, you will need to think carefully about forgiveness. You will need to think carefully about justice and how they intersect. Can I just say, if the material working through today is a bit too much, a bit too overwhelming, I am completely okay if you need to take a breath, gather yourself, step outside if you need to. I will not be offended. You have full permission from me. I also want to say that forgiveness is one of those topics where you may completely disagree with me, and I'm okay with that. The thing that I care about, that we care about as a church, is that we wrestle hard with God's word about what God says, and my prayer and hope is that you might go home afterwards, open your Bibles, and see for yourself what God says about forgiveness and justice. We need God's help, so let's pray. Father God, we pray today you might speak clearly. Would your spirit help us to hear and listen well? Would King Jesus be seen front and center this morning? Please change us as we grapple with forgiveness and justice. Amen. Has anyone ever said to you, I forgive you? Anyone here who's done real wrong and hurt people, almost definitely all of us in this room, definitely me at least, I know how sweet it is to hear those words, I forgive you. It's like a weight is being lifted off the shoulders. To navigate any long-term relationship meaningfully, we need a robust ability to, to say sorry and to forgive because you and I know what we are like. We know we're not perfect and we know that we will stuff things up and so we will hurt each other. But increasingly so, our Western individualistic culture, I think, doesn't really believe that. Instead, I think we've become a culture that values justice over forgiveness. Rather than forgiveness, those who do wrong must earn their way back. They must atone for their sins, you might say. Uh-oh. <laughs> Did I press the wrong button? I'm sorry, Simone, you might need to help me. Oh, there we go. Oh, it's all good. Okay. 
Elizabeth Brunig of the New York Times tweeted this on June 2020, a month after George Floyd was murdered. She says this, There's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. There's heaps of thoughtful truth in what Elizabeth says there, isn't there? We know we're flawed, we know we're going to mess up, yet what cancel culture says, what it does is negatory. The standard our culture has is perfection. And if you do not match up, you are out. And it's overwhelming. We know that we can't live like that, constantly expecting perfection. It's constantly scared of being cancelled. But the crazy thing is that for them, they might think it's completely right and normal for an offender to work their way back to atone. But even when you do that, there's no responsibility on our end, on the culture's end, that after you atone, that we need to forgive you. It's not my problem. And of course, naturally, Elizabeth, after tweeting this, got so much backlash to this tweet, she deleted it. And the resounding opposition she received is captured in this quote in Delia Owen's book, Where the Crawdads Sing. She asked the question, why should the injured, the still bleeding, bear the onus of forgiveness? Why should the injured, the still bleeding, bear the onus of forgiveness? And if you listen to that, there's something that you and I resonate with there, isn't there? When someone has wronged you, the only one who can forgive is you, the wronged. When someone becomes a victim, they have had power taken from them. Why should they use that power that they have to give back to the one who made them a victim in forgiving them? The Me Too movement rightfully identifies this struggle. Why should we forgive abusers when all forgiveness does is allow them to abuse again? Where's the justice in that? Danielle Barron asks, should we forgive the men that assaulted us as she talks about Ari Shavit sexually assaulting her? Later on in the article, she asks several thoughtful questions, surprisingly, about forgiveness. She asks, what are the limits of forgiveness? When does ostracism end and atonement begin? Is there a pathway for an admitted abuser to seek redemption? She is someone who is grappling with the incredibly difficult position of considering forgiving the one who has abused her. And she gets the tension, though. We can't live in a society where there is just infinite punishment, infinite ostracization. Surely there must be redemption, even for an abuser. Or perhaps you might disagree. And I think that would be really reasonable to feel that. One person comments on this article, and it's a bit heavy and long, but I think it's really worth hearing. This commenter says this, Victims of sexual, uh, sexual crimes have enough to do in attempting to heal. Insisting that she also forgive the criminal abusive assaulter adds to her burden and plays into the sickness of patriarchal, misogynistic, male supremacist religions that blame women. He's talking about Christianity here, by the way. He goes on, Forgiveness is overrated. 
It heals not the body or mind. It gives the victim no safety and does not end crimes of sexual assault. Instead of talking about victims must forgive, we should be talking about tattooing the words rapist or sexual predator on the foreheads of criminals. This would actually help make women and children safer. Heavy words. But do you see the felt tension of the world that we live in? between forgiveness and justice? That's the question that we're exploring today. Because what some of the world concludes is this, to hell with forgiveness culture. Her opening line, forgiveness is not justice. Of all the lessons I've learned in my adult life, this is the most poignant, to hell with it. Forgiveness and justice It's a hard, heavy, and personal topic. But it's massively important for us and the world we live in to wrestle with it. At the same time, forgiveness and justice are also at the very heartbeat of Christianity. The very gospel itself needs it. This sermon will not answer every question you have, but it will seek to look a bit at what the Bible says about forgiveness and justice and how they come together. There's an outline in your bulletin on the seats. Pop it open. It will help you follow along. We'll read Matthew 18 in just a second as we talk about forgiveness. We'll then hear from Romans 12 as we think about justice. And finally, we'll think about the place where justice and forgiveness intersect. Nick's going to come up now and read Matthew 18, 15 to 35 for us. Hear the word of the Lord. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged 
and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nick. Two chapters earlier in Matthew's Gospel is where Jesus first mentions the church. Verse 17 of our passage is the second and only other time where church is mentioned in Matthew's Gospel. And here, the themes of justice and forgiveness come together. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. There is absolute room for Christians to call people to account. If they sin, which they will, which we will, go and point out their faults. What's the purpose of that? It's not to be proven correct. It's not to have won the argument or shamed the other. No, the point is win them over, to reconcile with them. It's quite confronting to think, to realize the duty that you and I have to point out the sin of others. We live in Australia, individualistic culture, where no one is higher than anyone else. Your sin, your problem. But no, in the church, we have a counter-cultural standard because it is not loving to leave someone in their sin. It's not loving for you, for them, for the church. In good friendship, you want people who will push you in helpful ways, not just to ignore your sin and sweep it under the rug. Now, I doubt this process is for every sin, otherwise all we'll do on Sundays is just point fingers at each other. I think there's a gravity to the particular sin here where individuals, groups, and the church need to confront it. But it's not just a blame and shame community at church, not that at all. It's for the purpose, again, to win them over. It's because we love people so much, we value the people that Jesus has died for, we value restored relationship. My guess is that for people in the room, we tend to lean towards one and not the other. Some of us might be prone to call out the sin of others. We're good at spotting faults and flaws, being critical. Others might just want reconciliation, but tend to cover over the sins of others, not calling them to listen, not to calling them to change or to repent. It's worth thinking which one you might lean towards. The church that Jesus loves and has died for requires both. But the natural question that arises from the passage is, well, we know we're going to mess up. How often then should we forgive one another? Peter asked it to Jesus in verse 21. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? How many times, Jesus? And Jesus gives an odd number. Should it be seven times, Jesus? Is Peter being a bit of a cop-out here? Yeah, 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 Jesus, I'll forgive them, but only up to seven times. Personally, I reckon I work on a three-strikes policy and you're out. Perhaps Peter is being generous. No. In their culture, the number seven has incredible significance. It signified perfection, something fully complete. It's forgiveness, full forgiveness. Jesus answered Peter 
and he ramps it up even higher. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Once again, not literally 77 times, as if you're one, two, three, no. Jesus is saying, perfect, perfect, complete, complete, complete and total forgiveness again and again. Peter, there is no limit. And to drive home his point, Jesus tells a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. But the problem is one of his servants owes him 10,000 bags of gold, which is a ridiculous number because in that day it represented the debt of approximately 10,000 years of work. If you earn $100,000 a year, the debt is $1 billion. This guy's debt would have probably sunk the entire kingdom. It means that this guy is completely incompetent. It's a ridiculous imaginary number. It's the biggest number that one word could describe. It represents an infinite debt. So naturally, he can't pay. And so, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The king decides on justice. Every relationship you have, everything you own, even your children too, sold to repay the debts, which to be honest, doesn't help the dying economy of this kingdom, but it is judgment. The servant gets on his knees, begs and says a ridiculous thing. He says, be patient with me. I will pay back everything. Bro, You can't. You don't have 10,000 years to work. And to be honest, it sounds like you're terrible at your job too. Why are you bargaining with this king? But, amazingly, the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Instead of justice, there is mercy. This is what forgiveness looks like. It looks like someone who cannot pay, being shown mercy. But have you asked the question, who pays here? You know who pays? The king pays. The kingdom pays. The citizens of the kingdom pay. Everyone and everyone is paying for the sin of this man. Have you ever realized that forgiveness is inherently unjust? Because forgiveness absorbs the cost of the wrongdoer on yourself. Forgiveness is inherently unjust. Forgiveness is costly, absorbing the cost on yourself. Story continues. Servant gets out of the throne. He finds a fellow servant who owed him a hundred silver coins, about three months' worth of wages. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Inexplicable. And even worse, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged me, saying, Be patient with me, I will pay it back. I feel like I've heard this somewhere before. He refuses and throws him in jail. Inexplicably, the one who has been shown mercy is unwilling to show mercy. For the forgiven, there is no forgiveness. 
The king naturally hears about this and says, You wicked servants, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant like just as I had on you? In the gospel, the logical and natural response to being forgiven is to forgive because you've been shown mercy. We all look at the actions of the servant who had his infinite debt cancelled, who angrily, self-entitledly demands the other servant who owes him relatively pocket change to what he owned. We look at that and we're shocked. There's something in us that asks, how can that be? Yet at the same time, it's kind of what you and I naturally do all the time, what our culture does. For example, we're easily forgetful. People can be patient with us, but we still find it hard to be patient with others. People can love our unlovely selves, but we still find it hard to love unlovely people. People can forgive us in our wrong, but we can still find it hard to forgive others in their wrong. It happens all the time. And if you look at non-religious views of forgiveness, one of the mainstream views is this. You forgive the other once they've paid enough. You forgive the other once they've paid enough. What's the desire behind it? Justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you've made me suffer, I will make you suffer. You've hurt my friends, I will hurt your friends. We do this sometimes outwardly, sometimes internally. We torture people in our minds. We exclude them, we avoid them, we give them the cold shoulder until the debt has been paid. But the problem with it is this. It thinks that in doing so, you can repay the cost, that you can regain what has been lost. But the problem is that it can't. The servant in the story cannot pay back an infinite debt. No person can ever really right a wrong. If you have hurt someone with your words, you cannot undo that. Um, they will still have that time where they have always been hurt by your words. You might suffer where you've been hurt for the same amount of time to equal it out, but that's not undo. That's not control Z. If someone has been murdered, you're never bringing them back. Jail time gives up your life, but does not bring back their life. So only wanting to forgive someone once they've paid enough cannot be enough and is not enough. And actually, even if you end up forgiving them, eventually, you will still bear the cost upon yourself. As said earlier, forgiveness is inherently unjust because you absorb the cost. We need to take a step back and ask the question, what is forgiveness? We've been talking about it a lot, but what's going on here? And to do so, I want to quickly turn to a few passages. Mark 11.25 says, When you stand praying, this is Jesus speaking, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Forgiveness here is in one sense internal. The person who has wronged you isn't next to you in this scenario. The passage just says, when you stand praying, generally. And it says, forgive them. I think it's a moment of internally relinquishing bitterness against someone. It's the internal moment to becoming willing to forgive this person. And which can I say, becoming willing to forgive someone takes a lot of time to be willing to forgive. 
At the very bottom of your outlines, there's a little flow chart there that I've shown you. That's the first step I've put there, being willing to forgive. The other, non, the other non-religious theory of forgiveness says this, forgive for your own benefits only. And there's rightness, I think, in this, letting go of bitterness. It's important to do so, to move on, to continue with your life, because it's so possible to be consumed when you've been wronged, where the wrong that's been done against you begins to define who you are. It begins to steal your sleep. It plays on repeat in your mind. Letting it go, forgiving them. And I think in that world, in the, I think in that worldview there is wisdom and truth there. But can I say it is not the whole biblical picture? As we've heard about earlier, what's the goal? The goal is to win the other person over, to reconcile with them. It's not purely internal, not purely self-motivated, not purely about me. It's relational. Okay, sure. So it's not just individual, internal, mental. Popo, where does change happen on the side of the wrongdoer, though? Where does that happen? Well, even in this verse, I think what it means here to listen to you, to win them over... I think listening to you implies change. Which is why for the servant in the parable, we expected repentance and changed living, didn't we? That's why we were so shocked when he didn't forgive. We expected transformation, change, repentance. It shows that he hasn't listened. I think Luke 17 makes this process really clear. First step, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Okay, point out their sin, perhaps they'll listen and change. Second step, if they repent, forgive them. That's the second step at the bottom of the process, at the bottom of your sheets, where it says first step, becoming willing to forgive, letting go of bitterness. Second step, the other person needs to repent. They need to recognize they've done wrong and to change. Now note, this will also take time, and they will change imperfectly. But your disposition in the midst of all of that is being willing to forgive. This whole time, you're bearing the cost. Jesus' disciples in the very next verse probably reflects how many of us feel in the room right now as we hear this, including me. They say to Jesus, increase our faith. And they're right. It is so hard to be willing to forgive imperfect people. Increase our faith, Jesus. And that's why I think it's really important to say right now, yes, forgive them, but can I say forgiveness is often not an instantaneous moment, but it's a process that takes time. Wounds don't heal overnight, do they? It's a process, not instantaneous. What's the goal? To win them over, reconcile with them slowly, but also not always fully. Because even when you forgive someone and they do change, it doesn't mean that sin doesn't have ongoing consequences. If someone is trusted with handling money at church, but takes them for themselves, they may change and we may forgive them and be reconciled. I might call them a brother and welcome them warmly at church. But to be honest, they're never handling money at church again. Or 
in marriage. If there is, God forbid, domestic violence and abuse in the relationship, first let me say the, the process will be long and extraordinary if forgiveness and reconciliation happens, but reconciliation does not mean you need to take them back. Forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. Reconciliation, even after repentance and forgiveness, is a slow and hard process. But over time, it can be really beautiful. And I do think in the world that we live in right now that struggles with maintaining relationship, reconciliation is powerful. Reconciliation shows the gospel. Reconciliation is necessary to long-lasting, serious relationships. More on that later. Being willing to forgive, letting go of business. The other person repents, perhaps once you've pointed out their sin. It's a process, not an instantaneous moment of forgiveness. Reconciliation that may still have lingering consequences. That's forgiveness. It's a longer section. The next two won't be as long. But the question is, Popo, hasn't everything that we've talked about so far denied justice? Haven't we ignored it? How do they square together then? It's inherently unjust. Okay, do we just give up justice? And to think about that more fully, Juliana's going to come up now and read another passage for us. Romans 12, 14 and 21. You might want to flip it open for yourself. Hear the word of God. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jules. Romans 12 shows Paul's desire for the church to live in harmony with one another. But literally, it means think the same way about each other because the way you see yourself And the way you see others changes how you relate together, is Paul's point. That's why he says, don't be proud, don't be conceited. Because being proud is thinking more of yourself than you should. You place yourself higher than people, which isn't what happens in God's family. Instead, we should be willing to associate with people of low positions, not being proud or conceited. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because when you have been wronged, you begin to see yourself and the other who's wronged you very differently. Simply, we can see them lower and lower, very natural, 
and raise ourselves higher and higher. People can begin to take different places in your mind. But it ignores the fundamental fact that we are all people. Even when people commit absolute atrocities. Much of the desire for justice in non-religious spaces sees the abuser pay for their crime how? It sees them pay for their crime by dehumanizing them. You can't forgive that person. It treats them as if they're a human. And in some twisted way, that is seen as a good thing for society. And while I completely empathize, I'm horrified and disgusted at what people have done to others, can I say that is not a society I want to live in? What does it do? It separates people into the perfect and the others, into humans and a degraded, dehumanized subclass. Lacking forgiveness leads to lacking humaneness. And the call of this passage is to see others rightly. They are sinners as are you. Now, of course, the immediate question is, well, I haven't murdered or raped someone or abused someone like someone else might have. Can you really say that I'm in the same category as them? The short answer is, according to God's standards, the answer is yes. I get that that is such a heavy statement, and we could spend an entire sermon on it. We preached through Romans 3 earlier this year. I'd point you to listen to that if you want to think more about that. But becoming willing to forgive, letting go of bitterness, includes within it seeing yourself and the other rightly, seeing them before God with you as sinners. And when you do that, you're actually able to begin relating with them. That's what Paul is saying here. But at the same time, Paul is not abstracted out of reality. He is very grounded in reality. He gets the difficulty of living in harmony together. Verse 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul's hope? Live at peace with everyone. What are you able to control? Not them. Not how they act. Only you. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You may be willing to forgive someone, but if they do not repent, you cannot be reconciled with them, as far as it depends on you. But there's also a particular form of justice that Paul urges Christians not to take. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. The natural desire to when you are hurt is to retaliate They hit me once, I'll hit them once. They hurt my friends, I hurt their friends. But really, if you think about it, that's not what really happens when you and I seek justice. Often what's happening is we don't seek justice, we seek vengeance. While justice might want a tooth for a tooth, vengeance comes up and says, I want to knock the whole jaw out. Vengeance is insatiable, all-consuming, It's never satisfied. And vengeance actually isn't concerned with justice. It just has the guise of justice. It just looks like it's just. Paul's next verse leans into that. Do not take revenge. Which is vengeance language, not justice language. And the reason why not to take vengeance, it's to leave room for God's wrath. 
Paul points to a future day where God himself will be completely just, where every sin committed by anyone at any time, he will avenge. He will repay. God promises that. Who is the judge and executioner? Not us, but him. Oftentimes in our anger, our hurt, our pain, we lash out in unjust vengeance. Paul says, do not take revenge, but trust that God will judge fully on that last day. But does that mean that there's no justice today? Andrew, are you saying that we should ignore our justice system? And I'm saying absolutely not. In fact, in the very next chapter, Paul talks about submitting to human authority that judges right now. Any murderer, any rapist, any abuser should go to jail. There is rightfulness and goodness in that. But when we become judge and executioner, we don't often give fair justice. We often give unjust vengeance. The priest Henry Nguyen wrote this, By not forgiving... I chain myself to a desire to get even, thereby losing my freedom. Becoming the judge and executioner enslaves ourselves. We don't see clearly, we don't judge rightly. We keep wanting to get even, and that is never-ending. That's why Paul says, don't take revenge. There is real hope in getting justice, though, not by us, but by following the God who is just, and he promises that he will enact perfect justice one day. Considering that first stage again of becoming willing to forgive, I think another part of it is committing to not replaying what someone has done again and again and again in your minds. Because what does that do? It only eats you up. It only fuels your anger. It only reinforces all the ways that they have done wrong against you. It only reinforces all the ways that you have done right. It doesn't help you to see them as they are alongside you as a sinner. But there's another thing in the midst of that that Paul challenges us with in verse 20. He says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give them something to drink. Don't replay the situation in your mind. Rightly see yourself and the other as sinners before God. And Paul adds, love the other person. Hungry? Feed him. Thirsty? Give him something to drink. To see another person as a fellow sinner humanizes them and shows that they have deep needs. And radically, it begins to give opportunities for Christians to show deep radical love. Now, of course, if you are unsafe in a relationship, this is not the stage you are at. I want to keep saying the whole process is so complex and so slow, and it just is so long and complicated. This is not the stage you're at. But the trajectory of where we move in the gospel is over time we begin to grow in humanizing them and so loving them. And the reality of what loving them does is, as Paul says, it heaps burning coals on their heads. Because you don't assume the place of judge, but you leave God to judge. The last verse of this passage summarizes lots of what we've been talking about. Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil. The world 
we live in has very low resources for maintaining relationships. It has a very shallow view of forgiveness because of their pursuit for vengeance, not justice. Responding to evil with evil only leads to being overcome. And in trying to solve the justice issue, it doesn't achieve justice anyway. As we said, you can't bring back the one who has been killed. You can't undo the trauma one has gone through. You can't get justice perfectly here. All it leads to is more evil. And ironically, in pursuing justice, all you create is more injustice. Instead, Paul encourages us to overcome evil with good. Desmond Tutu was the first black African archbishop of Cape Town, South Africa. He grew up in apartheid, where black people were systematically separated from white people. And he says this, There is no future without forgiveness. He rejected a justice system that required full crime and punishment for all crimes under the apartheid scheme. Instead, he proposed public should volunteer, people should be able to publicly, voluntarily confess what they have done. And what should we do? We should grant them amnesty and forgiveness. He argued that if it was not done this way, the only alternative possible was never-ending cycles of violence. And that was not the future he wanted for South Africa. Evil would only produce more evil. Paul tells us, overcome evil with good. It doesn't mean ignoring justice. God will perfectly judge one day. But our world will not survive being repaid with evil. In our world, forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation is so essential. Can I encourage you? Give up on your vengeance, masked as justice. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But even more close to the heart of Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the place where forgiveness and justice meet, the intersection between forgiveness and justice. We're at our last point now, home stretch. And if you've been paying attention, you might realize Popo you have missed the most essential part of the Christian faith. And without that, everything I've said so far is irrelevant. If you've been falling asleep, now is really the time to listen. The place where forgiveness and justice intersect is at the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us about who God is and who we are. Primarily, we are people who have not treated God as we should. And because he is just, perfectly just, more than anyone in this room, more than anyone in history, he judges wrongdoing against himself. And so we are all sinners before God, condemned. And not just against him, we sin against each other all the time. Easily, my disposition is again and again, evil, not good. And so we have the rightful punishment of death over our heads. That's justice. That's part of who the gospel says we are. But the gospel also tells us who God is. God comes himself in Jesus. He comes as an innocent man, completely, always, utterly disposed towards love and goodness. He cares for the oppressed, the abused, the forgotten, and is more just than you and I could even imagine. He revolts at the spiritual abuse of religious leaders. He is sickened 
by injustice, of our negligence, of the poor. He hates it, but he also does something about it. He is utterly just in ways that you and I are not. Yet the evildoers of the world seek to overcome him with their evil. And so they crucify him as a guilty criminal, even though he is completely innocent. But why does Jesus go to the cross? He goes to take the punishments for sinners, to take the punishment that you and I deservedly were bound for. He goes to satisfy justice. He takes God's judgment meant for us upon himself because a just God does not sweep sin under a rug. And to those who trust in his death and resurrection, he looks at you as God himself and he says, I forgive you. God himself says, I forgive you. Utterly tied up in the gospel message is forgiveness. Where do justice and forgiveness meet? It's at the cross. That's where he grants forgiveness to unjust people like you and I and takes upon himself our punishment to satisfy justice. It is the most unjust thing for innocent Jesus to die. Yet in the cross, that's where we see what forgiveness is. Forgiveness that is inherently unjust as he costly bears our sin on himself. And as we repent and turn to him, he welcomes us with open arms and reconciles us back to him. The cross is the perfect example of forgiveness. But the cross is also the motivating factor for our forgiveness. I gave you a diagram earlier but there's actually one extra step that I haven't put there. Before anything horizontal happens in our dealings with each other, God forgives us when we turn to him. There is a vertical relationship with God before there is a horizontal relationship of forgiveness. And can I say, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection this morning, can I urge you to do so? There is no more important relationship to get right than with God. Today, you can do business with the just and forgiving God. If that's you, stick around after service. I'd love to have a chat. We've talked about how forgiveness is a long and slow and hard process, but interwoven amidst every single stage is understanding what Jesus has done for us on the cross in forgiving us. Who are we? We are the servants in that parable in Matthew 18. We have an infinite debt against God that we could never pay, but in Jesus, it can and is forgiven as you trust in him. What's the natural follow-on effect? It's to forgive others as you have been forgiven. It's to show mercy as you have been shown mercy. It's not simple. It's not easy. It's not overnight. But be rid of your bitterness. Commit to not replaying that event again and again and again in your head. See the other and yourself rightfully as human sinners together. Even love them. Seek to win them over. Even maybe pray for them. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If your brother or sister repents, forgive them. Do not give in to vengeance that's masked as justice. Instead, trust in the justice that God will fully bring at the end of time. Forgiveness doesn't 
mean forgetting. Reconciliation doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for sin. But as much as you can, be reconciled. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm really aware that I have bitten off way more than I can chew in this sermon. Two books I would commend to you to think more about this. Forgive by Tim Keller and The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. If you notice, I haven't said anything about how to say sorry, Ken Sandy. We've talked about big, real scenarios like abuse and murder. But really, forgiveness is an everyday thing. It's not just a process that's slow, but learning how to do it is slow too. Teaching our children and each other how to do it is also slow and requires us to imperfectly model that to each other. For those in your family, for those here at church, for those here who are your friends. And because without a robust view of what the Bible says about forgiveness and how it squares with justice, where would that leave you? It will leave you trapped, embittered, constantly seeking vengeance with relationships that cannot deal with conflict, with relationships that don't last because we haven't learned how to repent and forgive. Because failure and sin will inevitably come. I will stay up the front here after service if you have questions or need prayer. I'm sure there are so many more questions that I have an answer, but my prayer is this. Would you go to look at the cross of Jesus, the place where forgiveness and justice meets, where God forgave us, he bore the cost upon himself, where he satisfied justice in taking our sin, in taking our place, so he might take us, repentant sinners, back into his arms with the sweetest words of all, I forgive you. Let's pray. Father God, What we have not, please give us. What we know not, please teach us. Who we are not, please make us. Would you help us to seek forgiveness and justice as we gaze upon the cross where they meet? Amen.